Welcome to the Weird and Loathsome Podcast. I am your pseudonymous host, Brian K. DeVille. The following is the second of a two-part reading of The Yellow Sign by Robert William Chambers. Enjoy. Why, Tess, I said, I only told you this to show you what influence your story might have on another person's dreams. You don't suppose I really lay in a coffin, do you? What are you trembling for? Don't you see that your dream and my unreasonable dislike for that inoffensive watchman of the church simply set my brain working as soon as I fell asleep? She leaned her head between my arms and sobbed as if her heart would break. What a precious triple donkey I had made of myself. But I was about to break my record. I went over and put my arm about her. Tessie, dear, forgive me, I said. I had no business to frighten you with such nonsense. You are too sensible a girl, too good a Catholic to believe in dreams. Her hand tightened on mine, and her head fell back on my shoulder. But she still trembled, and I petted her and comforted her. Come, Tess, open your eyes and smile. Her eyes opened with a slow, languid movement and met mine, but their expression was so queer that I hastened to reassure her again. It's all humbug, Tessie. You surely are not afraid that any harm will come to you because of that. No, she said, but her scarlet lips quivered. Then what's the matter? Are you afraid? Yes, not for myself. For me, then, I demanded gaily. For you, she murmured in a voice almost inaudible. I care for you. At first I started to laugh, but when I understood her, a shock passed through me, and I sat like one turned to stone. This was the crowning bit of idiocy I had committed. During the moment which elapsed between her reply and my answer, I thought of a thousand responses to that innocent confession. I could pass it by with a laugh. I could misunderstand and reassure her as to my health. I could simply point out that it was impossible she could love me. But my reply was quicker than my thoughts, and I might think and think now when it was too late, for I had kissed her on the mouth. That evening, I took my usual walk in Washington Park, pondering over the occurrences of the day. I was thoroughly committed. There was no back out now, and I stared the future straight in the face. I was not good, not even scrupulous, but I had no idea of deceiving either myself or Tessie. The one passion of my life lay buried in the sunlit forests of Brittany. Was it buried forever? Hope cried no. For three years I had been listening to the voice of Hope, and for three years I had waited for a footstep on my threshold. Had Sylvia forgotten? No, cried Hope. I said that I was no good. That is true, 
but still, I was not exactly a comic opera villain. I had led an easygoing, reckless life, taking what invited me of pleasure, deploring and sometimes bitterly regretting consequences. In one thing alone, except my painting, was I serious, and that was something which lay hidden, if not lost, in the Breton forests. It was too late for me to regret what had occurred during the day. Whatever it had been, pity, a sudden tenderness for sorrow, or the more brutal instinct of gratified vanity, it was all the same now. And unless I wished to bruise an innocent heart, my path lay marked before me. The fire and strength, the depth of passion of a love which I had never even suspected, with all my imagined experience in the world, left me no alternative but to respond or send her away. Whether because I am so cowardly about giving pain to others, or whether it was that I have little of the gloomy Puritan in me, I do not know. But I shrank from disclaiming responsibility for that thoughtless kiss and in fact had no time to do so before the gates of her heart opened and flood poured forth. Others who habitually do their duty and find a sullen satisfaction in making themselves and everybody else unhappy might have withstood it. I did not. I dared not. After the storm had abated, I did tell her that she might better have loved Ed Burke and worn a plain gold ring but she would not hear of it. And I thought perhaps as long as she had decided to love somebody she could not marry, it had better be me. I, at least, could treat her with an intelligent affection, and whenever she became tired of her infatuation, she could go none the worse for it. For I was decided on that point, although I knew how hard it would be. I remembered the usual termination of platonic liaisons and thought how disgusted I had been whenever I heard of one. I knew I was undertaking a great deal for so unscrupulous a man as I was, and I dreamed the future, but never for one moment did I doubt that she was safe with me. Had it been anybody but Tessie I should not have bothered my head about scruples for it did not occur to me to sacrifice Tessie as I would have sacrificed a woman of the world. I looked the future squarely in the face and saw the several probable endings to the affair. She would either tire of the whole thing or become so unhappy that I should have either to marry her or go away. If I married her, we would be unhappy. I with a wife unsuited to me and she with a husband unsuitable for any woman for my past life could scarcely entitle me to marry. If I went away, she might either fall ill, recover and marry some Eddie Burke, or she might recklessly or deliberately go and do something foolish. On the other hand, if she tired of me, then her whole life would be before her with beautiful vistas of Eddie Burke's and marriage rings and twins and Harlem flats and heaven knows what. As I strolled along through the trees by the Washington Arch, I decided that she... I decided that she should find a substantial friend in me, anyway, and the future could take care of itself. Then I went into the house and put on my evening dress, for the little, faintly perfumed note on my dresser said, 
have a cab at the stage door at eleven, and the note was signed, Edith Carmichael, Metropolitan Theatre. I took supper that night, or rather we took supper, Miss Carmichael and I, at Solari's, and the dawn was just beginning to gild the cross on the memorial church as I entered Washington Square after leaving Edith at the Brunswick. There was not a soul in the park as I passed along the trees and took the walk which leads from the Garibaldi statue to the Hamilton apartment house, but as I passed the churchyard I saw a figure sitting on the stone steps. In spite of myself, a chill crept over me at the sight of the white, puffy face, and I hastened to pass. Then he said something which may have been addressed to me, or might merely have been a mutter to himself, but a sudden furious anger flamed up within me that such a creature should address me. For an instant I felt like wheeling about and smashing my stick over his head, but I walked on and, entering the Hamilton, went to my apartment. For some time I tossed about in the bed, trying to get the sound of his voice out of my ears, but could not. It filled my head, that muttering sound, like thick oily smoke from a fat rendering vat, or an odor of noisome decay. And as I lay and tossed about, the voice in my ears seemed more distinct and I began to understand the words he had muttered. They came to me slowly as if I had forgotten them, and at last I could make some sense out of the sounds. It was this. Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow Sign. I was furious. What did he mean by that? Then, with a curse upon him and his, I rolled over and went to sleep. But when I awoke later, I looked pale and haggard, for I had dreamed the dream of the night before, and it troubled me more than I cared to think. I dressed and went down into my studio. Tessie sat by the window. But as I came in, she rose and put both arms around my neck for an innocent kiss. She looked so sweet and dainty that I kissed her again, and then sat down before the easel. Hello. Where's the study I began yesterday? I asked. Tessie looked conscious, but did not answer. I began to hunt among the piles of canvases, saying, Hurry up, Tess, and get ready. We must take advantage of the morning light. When at last I gave up the search among the other canvases and turned to look around the room for the missing study, I noticed Tessie standing by the screen with her clothes still on. What's the matter? I asked. Don't you feel well? Yes. Then hurry. Do you want me to pose as... as I have always posed? Then I understood. Here was a new complication. I had lost, of course, the best nude model I had ever seen. I looked at Tessie. Her face was scarlet. Alas, alas. We had eaten of the tree of knowledge. And Eden and native innocence were dreams of the past. 
I mean, for her. I suppose she noticed the disappointment on my face, for she said, I will pose if you wish. The study is behind the screen here where I put it. No, I said, we will begin something new. And I went into my wardrobe and picked out a Moorish costume which fairly blazed with tinsel. It was a genuine costume, and Tessie retired to the screen with it enchanted. When she came forth again, I was astonished. Her long black hair was bound above her forehead with a circlet of turquoise, and at the ends curled about her glittering girdle. Her feet were encased in the embroidered pointed slippers and the skirt of her costume, curiously wrought with arabesques in silver, fell to her ankle. The deep metallic blue vest embroidered with silver and the short maresque jacket spangled and sewn with turquoise became her wonderfully. She came up to me and held up her face, smiling. I slipped my hand into my pocket and drawing out a gold chain with a cross attached, dropped it over her head. It's yours, Tessie. Mine? She faltered. Yours. Now go and pose. Then, with a radiant smile, she ran behind the screen and presently reappeared with a little box on which was written my name. I had intended to give it to you when I went home tonight, she said, but I can't wait now. I opened the box. On the pink cotton inside lay a clasp of black onyx on which was inlaid a curious symbol or letter in gold. It was neither Arabic nor Chinese, nor, as I found afterwards, did it belong to any human script. It's all I had to give you for a keepsake, she said timidly. I was annoyed, but I told her how much I should prize it and promised to wear it always. She fastened it on my coat beneath the lapel. How foolish, Tess, to go and buy me such a beautiful thing as this, I said. I did not buy it, she laughed. Where did you get it? Then she told me how she had found it one day while coming from the aquarium in the battery, and how she had advertised it and watched the papers, but at last gave up all hopes of finding the owner. That was last winter, she said, the very day I had that first horrid dream about the hearse. I remembered my dream of the previous night, but said nothing, and presently my charcoal was flying over a new canvas and Tessie stood motionless on the model stand. Three. The day following was a disastrous one for me. While moving a framed canvas from one easel to another, my foot slipped on the polished floor, and I fell heavily on both wrists. They were so badly sprained that it was useless to attempt to hold a brush and I was obliged to wander about the studio, glaring at unfinished drawings and sketches, until despair seized me and I sat down to smoke and twiddle my thumbs with rage. The rain blew against the windows and rattled on the roof of the church, driving me into a nervous fit with its interminable patter.
Tessie sat sewing by the window, and every now and then raised her head and looked at me with such innocent compassion that I began to feel ashamed of my irritation and looked about for something to occupy me. I had read all the papers and all the books in the library, but for the sake of something to do I went to the bookcases and shoved them open with my elbow. I knew every volume by its color and examined them all, passing slowly around the library and whistling to keep up my spirits. I was turning to go into the dining room when my eye fell upon a book bound in serpent skin, standing in a corner of the top shelf of the last bookcase. I did not remember it, and from the floor could not decipher the pale lettering on the back, so I went to the smoking room and called Tessie. She came in from the studio and climbed up to reach the book. What is it? I asked. The King in Yellow. I was dumbfounded. Who had placed it there? How came it in my rooms? I had long ago decided I should never open up that book, and nothing on earth could have persuaded me to buy it. Fearful lest curiosity might tempt me to open it, I had never even looked at it in bookstores. If I ever had had any curiosity to read it, the awful tragedy of young Castaigne, whom I knew well, prevented me from exploring its wicked pages. I had always refused to listen to any description of it, and indeed nobody ever ventured to discuss the second part aloud, so I had absolutely no knowledge of what those leaves might reveal. I stared at the poisonous mottled binding as I would at a snake. Don't touch it, Tessie, I said. Come down. Of course, my admonition was enough to arouse her curiosity, and before I could prevent it, she took the book and, laughing, danced off into the studio with it. I called to her, but she slipped away with a tormenting smile at my helpless hands, and I followed her with some impatience. Tessie, I cried, entering the library. Listen, I am serious. Put that book away. I do not wish you to open it. The library was empty. I went into both drawing rooms, then into the bedrooms, laundry, kitchen, and finally returned to the library and began a systematic search. She had hidden herself so well that it was half an hour later when I discovered her crouching, white and silent, by the latticed window in the storeroom above. At the first glance I saw she had been punished for her foolishness. The king in yellow lay at her feet, but the book was open at the second part. I looked at Tessie and saw it was too late. She had opened the king in yellow. Then I took her by the hand and led her into the studio. She seemed dazed, and when I told her to lie down on the sofa, she obeyed me without a word. After a while, she closed her eyes and her breathing became regular and deep, but I could not determine whether or not she slept. For a long while I sat silently beside her, but she neither stirred nor spoke. And at last I rose, and entering the unused storeroom, took the book in my least injured hand. It seemed heavy as lead, but I carried it into the studio again, and sitting down on the rug beside the sofa, I opened it.
and read it through from beginning to end. When, faint with excess of my emotions, I dropped the volume and leaned warily back against the sofa, Tessie opened her eyes and looked at me. We had been speaking for some time in a dull, monotonous strain before I realized that we were discussing the king in yellow. Oh, the sin of writing such words, words which are as clear as crystal, limpid and musical as bubbling springs, words which sparkle and glow like the poisoned diamonds of the Medicis. Oh, the wickedness, the hopeless damnation of a soul who could fascinate and paralyze human creatures with such words, words understood by the ignorant and wise alike, words which are more precious than jewels, more soothing than music, more awful than death. We talked on, unmindful of the gathering shadows, and she was begging me to throw away the clasp of black onyx quaintly inlaid with what we now knew to be the yellow sign. I never shall know why I refused, though even at this hour, here in my bedroom as I write this confession, I should be glad to know what it was that prevented me from tearing the yellow sign from my breast and casting it into the fire. I am sure I wished to do so, and yet Tessie pleaded with me in vain. Night fell and the hours dragged on, but still we murmured to each other of the king and the pallid mask, and midnight sounded from the misty spires of the fog-wrapped city. We spoke of Haster and of Casilda, while outside the fog rolled against the blank window panes as the cloud waves roll and break on the shores of Holly. The house was very silent now, and not a sound came up from the misty streets. Tessie lay among the cushions, her face a gray blot in the gloom, but her hands were clasped in mine, and I knew that she knew and read my thoughts as I read hers, for we had understood the mystery of the Hyades, and the phantom of truth was laid. Then, as we answered each other swiftly, silently, thought on thought, the shadows stirred in the gloom about us, and far in the distant streets we heard a sound. Nearer and nearer it came, the dull crunching of wheels, nearer and yet nearer, and now, outside before the door it ceased, and I dragged myself to the window and saw a black-plumed hearse. The gate below opened and shut, and I crept, shaking to my door and bolted it, but I knew no bolts, no locks could keep that creature out who was coming for the yellow sign. And now I heard him moving very softly along the hall. Now he was at the door, and the bolts rotted at his touch. Now he had entered. With eyes starting from my head, I peered into the darkness, but when he came into the room, I did not see him. It was only when I felt him envelope me in his cold, soft grasp that I cried out and struggled with deadly fury. 
but my hands were useless, and he tore the onyx clasp from my coat and struck me full in the face. Then, as I fell, I heard Tessie's soft cry and her spirit fled, and even while falling I longed to follow her, for I knew that the king in yellow had opened his tattered mantle, and there was only God to cry to now. I could tell more, but I cannot see what help it would be to the world. As for me, I am past human help or hope. As I lie here, writing, careless even whether or not I die before I finish, I can see the doctor gathering up his powders and files with a vague gesture to the good priest beside me, which I understand. They will be very curious to know the tragedy. They of the outside world who write books and print millions of newspapers. But I shall write no more. And the Father Confessor will seal my last words with the seal of sanctity when his holy office is done. They of the outside world may send their creatures into wrecked homes and death-smitten firesides, and their newspapers will batten on blood and tears. But with me their spies must halt before the confessional. They know that Tessie is dead, and that I am dying. They know how the people in the house, aroused by an infernal scream, rushed into my room and found one living and two dead. But they do not know that the doctor said, as he pointed to a horrible decomposed heap on the floor, the livid corpse of the watchman from the church. I have no theory, no explanation. That man must have been dead for months. I think I am dying. I wish the priest would. The proceeding has been the second in a two-part reading of The Yellow Sign by Robert W. Chambers, first published in 1895. Here at the close of our story, it is now clear to the reader and listener that the disquieting dreams of Mr. Scott and Tessie were something so much more sinister than typical nightmares. The fate of the unfortunate couple we've seen was sealed long before the artist spied the grub-like groundskeeper. In fact, it was months prior to the story's setting when Tessie unwittingly took possession of the yellow sign that the king in yellow turned towards the doomed New Yorkers. With his sigil in their lives, it was only a matter of time before the king caught them in his grasp. First in the grasp of these infected dreams, then by exposure to the madness-inducing play, and finally in the very literal grasp of the worm-like hearse conductor. So by now, this piece is firmly grounded in the mind of the reader or listener as a part of the weird tales genre rather than a simple spooky story. This work was published in the late 19th century at the advent of weird fiction. It contains a number of signifiers and conventions familiar as hallmarks of Lovecraftian and genre fiction. It shows us the perils of creativity, 
the otherworldly significance of dreams and the introduction of an arcane and dangerous text. The play The King in Yellow is certainly not the Necronomicon, but it is very much a work whose contents lead the unwary reader to his early and disastrous end. It also contains what would become recognizable in the Lovecraft context as a great old one, an unknowable and powerful entity far beyond our human conceptions of good and evil. Finally, having a protagonist racked with madness after a horrific revelation is a very clear signpost of this genre. I believe this story and its relations to earlier and later works demonstrates one of the most powerful aspects of weird fiction. Uh, it features Haster, found also in the wider Cthulhu mythos, but he is not a creation of Chambers. Haster was first mentioned by Ambrose Bierce some years before. While the nature of Hastor is inconsistent across stories, hewing toward or away from his identification with the King in Yellow and sometimes being assigned a kind of moral alignment, the interplay between authors in this previously uninvented or unexplored mythology is one of the things that makes weird fiction so compelling. We can discover here a broad universe of gods, monsters, dangerous texts, and other connective tissue throughout. And it's this shared genetic material that results in a depth and verisimilitude that is so deeply engrossing. Lovecraft wasn't the earliest pioneer of this expanded universe, but he is seminal in having done more than anyone before or since to flesh out this notion, and to encourage others to incorporate the Cthulhu mythos in their own work. It is my personal belief that the absence of any canonical text definitively establishing an alignment of Shub Nigarath, Cthulhu, Yog Sathoth, and Haster, either between each other or towards humanity, really allows the works to feel so viscerally like a part of a vast and unknowable universe being explained by various authors in ways that mirror humanity's attempts to resolve their search for meaning in a meaningless universe. It has been a pleasure to share this story on the podcast, and I look forward to further exploring this genre within and beyond the bounds of weird fiction and cosmic horror. I am your host, Brian K. DeVille, and I hope you have enjoyed this weird and loathsome podcast.